our prayer focus this Alrighty, so as I said a little bit earlier, we're starting a brand new sermon series this morning. It's going to be short-lived. I think it's only going to be for this month. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4 specifically. You can go ahead and grab your Bibles uh, if you have one with you and open them up to Ephesians chapter 4. If you did not bring a Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one in one of the baskets in front of you there in those seats. Uh, and if there's not one of those around, feel free to pull out your cell phone. And go on your Bible app, and if you don't have that with you, that's okay too. It's probably going to be up on the screen behind me, uh, so you'll be able to follow along anyway. Uh, this gospel series is called In Light of the Gospel, and that was a very uh, specifically chosen uh, uh, title for this series as we are jumping into the middle of a book, um, and really the context of Ephesians chapter 4 is the gospel. It's everything we do, we do in light of the gospel. But I'm going to hammer that home here in just a minute, so I'm not going to labor that point right now. Um, but you should have your Bibles open now to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's read. We're going to read verses 1 through 6 this morning, and then we will dive in. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all." We'll pick up in verse 7 next week. Anytime that we, uh, again, jump into the middle of, of a book, we have to always remember the context. And as we read through uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, we get two words in, and it says, I therefore, right? This is Paul speaking. And anytime that you see the word therefore in Scripture, you always got to ask, what is it there for, right? That's the context of this. And so I want to take a little bit of time, it won't take me a super long time, but a little bit of time to go over Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 with you because I think it is incredibly important that we understand the context of this. And so you know, uh, if anyone's been here, I think it's been about a year, you might remember I presented something called the Gospel Grid. Does anybody remember the Gospel Grid? Okay, I got at least one or two hands up. Fantastic. I should have a slide with the gospel grid. There it is. I'm sorry if the writing is a little bit small. Um, but Paul really in Ephesians 1 through 3 is laying out verbally the gospel grid, right? So the way that this works is this is a timeline, right? We move from left to right here. You were born at some point. And eventually you heard the gospel of Jesus for the first time. You began to understand that God is holy and that you are not. And there's this gap between God and you that's formed. And the cross of Jesus Christ bridges that gap between God and man. Well, as we grow and time is moving forward, prayerfully we're growing in Christ, we continue to understand more and more of God's holiness. He's not getting more holy. Our understanding of his holiness is continuing to grow. And so he gets higher and higher in our estimation. Well, at the same time, we recognize through studying our, our, our Word, our, our, our Bibles, 
and by our life experiences, we, be, we understand more and more the depths of our depravity and just how broken we are, right? And so this cross of Christ continues to grow and grow and grow in our estimation, and we get more and more gratitude in our hearts for what the Lord has done on our be, in, in our behalf. And so we begin to feel like everything that we do, we, we, we want to honor the Lord. We remember the gospel, and we're like, man, he is so, so worthy of my praise. He's so worthy of my life and everything that I do. That's, that's the healthy way that we grow, right? This is, this is a good vis- visual illustration of the gospel and what should motivate us as Christians. And I want to show you that in Ephesians 1 through 3, Really, Paul is laying out this gospel grid. He's very uh, keen on this uh, top bar, as, as you'll see there. God's holiness, the wonderful work of Jesus, is really, really spelled out in Ephesians 1 through 3. You don't have to follow along with me. Um, I'm probably going to do a little bit of jumping. I'll tell you where I am sometimes. But let's start with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. He says this, he says, he has blessed us, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, I'm not going to stand here today and tell you I understand in depth what that means, right? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, uh, the, the thing that comes to my mind off the top of my head as we approach Christmas is like a Christmas tree uh, with presents underneath it. We don't know what those presents are. Uh, you know, there's some joy that we have today. I believe that's partially a spiritual blessing, but there's something in the future that's fantastic, and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours through Jesus Christ this morning. And I know Paul also says later on that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to what God has for us in the future. Verse 4, he says that he chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. It's like God looked ahead, right? He saw we were going to be wearing our, 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 our sin and our shame and our guilt. And he decided to separate us before the foundations of the world from our sin and give you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, it says, in love he adopted us into his family and he calls us his children. There are two major fears that plague humanity today, and that would be a fear of abandonment and a fear of rejection. But God, our Father, has wrapped us into his family. He said he will never leave us or forsake us. You will never be rejected because of the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. You are adopted into a family Look left, look right, right? This is, this is our new family with God himself as our father because of what Jesus has done. Verse 6 says he did all these things according to his great grace, right? Verse 7 says he's redeemed us by the shedding of his blood. God himself became a man and then died the death that you and I deserve, took our guilt, again, our shame on himself, and gave us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He says he's forgiven our encroachments of his law according to his grace, which he's lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight. I love this. This, this basically means that as you and I sit in our seats today, right, he knows the individual seat that you are sitting in this morning. What's more than that is he knows the exact personality and who you are, your little idiosyncrasies, every little thing about you, and like a, a, a wonderful, perfect father, he's not just giving you candy all the time, 
right? He is blessing you according to your very particular needs. It says he's lavishing his grace upon us with all wisdom and insight. He's not just giving you gifts willy-nilly. He's thought through exactly who you are and exactly what you need, exactly when you need it this morning. I love that. Verse 8 says he's, he's shown us his plan to unite all things through Jesus. Verse 11 says he has given us an inheritance according to his sovereign will. Not only has he wrapped you into his family and he'll never leave you or forsake you. You are so in that you have an inheritance in Jesus. It says he has set us up as an example of his great work in Jesus Christ. It's like he's saying, look at my son, look at my daughter. Right? He set us up as an example to the world of his great work in Jesus Christ. Verse 13 says that upon your belief in the gospel, you were given the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God within you, who's the guarantee of your inheritance. Right? You have the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God living inside of your bodies. Again, it's him looking forward and seeing that we're going to wrestle and sometimes we're going to ask like, man, am I even saved? Do I even know Jesus? I'm still wrestling with this sin problem. And he's given us his Holy Spirit to indwell us as a guarantee of our inheritance. Verse 18, Paul prays that we might know the hope that God has given us, the glorious inheritance he has in the saints and God's immeasurable power toward us who believe if God is for us, who can be against us. And then chapter 2, verse 1, it says he did all of these things while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Following the spirit of disobedience, carrying out the passions of our flesh, the desires of our bodies. And he says that we were by nature objects of wrath. Right, chapter 1, he's building this, this upper arm of the gospel grid quite a bit, right? He's like, man, God has done all these amazing things. He says, God has done all of those things while we were following the spirit of disobedience. We were by nature objects of wrath. But then in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ when the time was right. Again, Paul isn't dwelling on how terrible we are. He's dwelling on with the amazing things that God has done on our behalf. Chapter 2, verse 10, he's given us things to do, right? It says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He didn't just leave us to sit here today and twiddle our thumbs and not do anything. He's called us to partner with him in the extension of the gospel. We get to partake in the saving of the world through the proclamation of the gospel. Verses 12 through 21, it says he's torn down the dividing wall of hostility between man and man and between God and man. I think here he's specifically thinking of the, the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles, but the implications go much further, right? We live in a world of racial tension right now. But God, it says in chapter 2 here, has broken down that dividing wall so that there's one new man in Jesus Christ. There's no need for division among us. We have no need for that now because of the work that Jesus has done. He's torn down that dividing wall of hostility both between God and man and between man and man. And woman and woman, if you will. Right? And in chapter 3, it says Paul is praying 
that by some miracle we might be able to comprehend the magnitude of God's love for us. He says it's going to take a, a miracle for us to grasp the magnitude of what Jesus has done and how much God loves us. That's the context of Ephesians chapter 4. When he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner of the calling with which you've been called, he's saying, look at the gospel, right? Look at all the amazing things God has done for you. I'm begging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Walk like you deserve what God has done. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but he has separated you and has chosen to separate you before the foundation of the world from your sin to make you holy and blameless in his sight, adopt you into his family, give you an inheritance, give you his very presence today in your bodies. Can I get an amen? That's the context of Ephesians chapter 4. That's why we named this series in light of the gospel. Please, when you walk in here every day for this series, when you see that sermon title, re remember the gospel is why I do what I do. That's why we do what we do. Because of everything God has done for us, that's, it's such a big deal. I can't stress it enough. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Uh, and then he starts to get a little bit more practical, right? He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, humility and gentleness here. Uh, it was a little bit confusing when I started to study this because the word humility is always translated humility. But the word gentleness is also translated meekness, and it's also translated humility. I was like, well, that's a little weird, right? Walk with all humility and humility. Like, yeah, that's, that's, that's a little bit funny. But uh, as you continue to study and you look into the nuances of these two words, uh, the first word for humility I will not try to pronounce because I would butcher it. But it is an inward-focused word. It's the way that we see ourselves. When we look at ourselves in light of the gospel, there is a humility that is produced, uh, a lowliness, a recognition of our brokenness before the Lord. And the word gentleness or meekness is really an outward-focused word. It's the way that we see other people and the way that we see God and the way we interact in those two relationships. So the one is an inward focus and the other is a more relational focused word. And I think it's really one concept that Paul wants to put on the table. That's why the word and is separating them. Uh, it's with humility and gentleness, these two wrapped together in inward and in outward humility before the Lord. But I want to talk about humility a, a little bit, what it is and what it is not. Uh, so first of all, humility is not uh, beating yourself up, right? I think sometimes when we think of the word humility, we think of that person who's like, oh, you know, I'm terrible at this or that, right? Like, that's not humility. Humility is an accurate view of where you are within the lens of the gospel. An example, almost a silly example, uh, is like, I'm not a great skier, right? I'm not a great snow skier. Some of you know uh, I broke my collarbone on a bunny slope into four pieces. 
right? Uh, it, and it's not like I'm beating myself up in front of you right now. It's just an accurate view, y'all. Like, look, I'm not a good skier. Please don't invite me on your ski trip because I'm not going to go because I'm going to die, right? Like, it, it, it's, it's, it's not me beating myself up. I would consider myself to be a, a, a mediocre fisherman. Like, I, I, I love fishing. I go out fishing often. But listen, if you've been out fishing with me, you know I catch little fish, right? I think every person I've been on a trip with has caught bigger fish than me, with the exception of like one time I caught a bigger fish than this other guy. But like in general, like, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, I'm, I'm a terrible fisherman. No, I don't think I'm terrible, but I'm also not like amazing. I think Chris... Bevel has outfished me every time we've been fishing together. He, he always catches big fish, right? But this idea of self-deprecation or beating yourself up in front of people usually happens in one of three contexts, right? The first one is the most healthy, and that would be comedy, right? I'm up here, and I'm telling you, I'm, I, 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 don't invite me on, on, your, on, on your ski trip. It, it, it's funny, whatever, right? There's, there's some self-beating up there that's just meant for comedy, and that's fine. The other two reasons, though, are not very good. The first one of those would be maybe like a, a, an illness, like a depression. Maybe someone has been in a, uh, a verbally abusive relationship, and they literally, in their mind, they are that bad. That's not humility. It's not good. It's not healthy. God is not encouraging us, though, to that place. That's not a good thing. And if you're in that boat, please get hold of a counselor, talk to somebody, get some really good friends around you, because uh, that's not a good place for you to be. The other reason why people get into this self-beating up kind of speech is really because of pride. And it sounds funny, but it's a pride and a manipulation where you're looking for someone to come around you and say, oh, you're not that bad, Joe. You know, you're not that bad. You, you catch big fish sometimes, right? Like, it's one of those two places, typically, whenever we are honestly not just looking for laughs, when we are, like, really beating ourselves up. It's one of those two places. It's sickness or it's, it's pride, and it's, it's not good. It's not what the Bible is calling us to. It's an accurate view of who we are in light of the gospel, again, in Ephesians chapter 2, the chapter, two chapters before where we are this morning, he said we were by nature objects of wrath. We were walking in our own sin, and God, while we were dead, not dying, right, dead in our trespasses and sins, he, by his grace, made us alive together with Christ. It should produce some humility within us as we deal with other people, uh, which is that next word, um, which I believe is prehutes, um, which is, again, meekness or gentleness. And this primarily, first of all, deals with our relationship with God, right? We remember what God has done for us again, this gospel being our motivation, fresh in our mind from Ephesians 1 through 3. Uh, this relationship is first where we walk before the Lord and we're like, man, we don't deserve what you've done for us, Lord, thank you for your gospel. And we walk in a place of gentleness and meekness and lowliness, not because we're not of any value, but because of everything that God has done for us. We recognize his amazing value is higher than ours. And that carries on into the way that we deal with one another, right? Our relationships with one another. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, 
uh, to do nothing out of vain conceit uh, or selfish ambition, but in humility to count others as more significant than ourselves. C.S. Lewis says uh, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking about other people more. And I would even change the wording on that a little bit, and I would say humility is not uh, thinking, of our, uh, thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking more of other people, right? We're recognizing the amazing value that God has invested in all of humanity, even people who don't think like us, they have amazing value through Jesus Christ. I'm not going to belabor this next point very long, but I think it's important that we note arrogance is the enemy of your salvation and of your sanctification. You're never going to come to know Jesus. You're never going to submit to the King of Kings if you don't feel like you need to be saved, right? That's, that's what arrogance does. It says, listen, I, I don't need anything. I'm fine. I'm good. I don't need Jesus. I'm a good guy. I do th- things the way that, you know, I want to do them, and I don't, you know, whatever, name your thing, right? I don't do that. It's arrogance, and it's the enemy of your salvation, And again, of your sanctification, this process of removing sin from your life and looking more and more like Jesus, if you're arrogant, you don't even see that you're doing anything wrong. Why would you care to look? You're already the best at everything, right? (laughs) That's, it's, it's the enemy. Don't let yourself be found in a place of arrogance, because I promise you, you're not going to be used by God. You're never going to grow. You need to get rid of the arrogance. I'm not saying confidence. That's something else. You can be confident. Confident in the Lord and in His gifts in you. But let's not let arrogance creep in. Because that's where growth stops. And people are never going to come to know Jesus if we are acting in arrogance. Moving on, verse 3, he says here, Uh, that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It's like Paul knows, right? Like, listen, there are a lot of reasons for you and I to be divided. There's a ton of reasons for us to be divided. A thousand reasons to be divided. But the most important reason of all, we have to be united, to be in unity with one another. Again, we just, we just heard in Ephesians chapter 2 that God has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. He's made us all into one new man in Jesus Christ. And even though there are a thousand reasons, again, for us to be divided, they aren't worth actually dividing over. It says here, the, uh, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit, that means anyone who believes in the gospel and has the Holy Spirit, we should be eager to be unified with them. Listen, there are reasons for division, right? If you don't believe Jesus is capital G, God, I don't believe we believe in the same God, right? Unity does not condone ignorance. And I want to make that very clear. Study your Bibles. 
Know what you believe and why you believe it. If you don't think we should have communion every Sunday, okay, man, we can talk about that. I'm happy about it. But if you don't believe that, that's okay. We're not going to break fellowship over that because I still love you and the gospel is bigger than the small ways that we do things. That's okay. Be a part of our church. We are still going to love you. There are reasons for disunity. But Paul is saying we should be eager in every way to be unified with one another. No matter what you look like, right? Black, white, Asian, Hispanic, Hawaiian, whatever. It doesn't matter. We're one new man in Jesus Christ. Heaven is going to be colorful and that's fantastic i'm excited about that i want to be able to lock arms with men and women who know jesus of every race and every tongue and every nation amen and that's what paul is calling us to but not only in heaven today because the gospel is bigger than our reasons for being divided it's so much bigger so much bigger problem with unity is that there are people involved, right? Uh, I wrote this long sentence, and I guess I'll go ahead and and I'll read it. Uh, I will make it clear, though, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular in this church. Honestly, I think y'all are fantastic people. I, I, I love this church body. But people who maybe are brand new to Jesus or still don't know Jesus and someone who we're trying to minister to might fit this description. Um... After working in restaurants for most of my adult life, uh, this is what I wrote. The problem, with, the problem is people. People are difficult, opinionated, self-centered, inconsiderate, and biting. It's hard. People stink. They're, they're really, really hard to deal with. And maybe you and I can sometimes fit that description, especially when we're going through a hard time, right? You remember when Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. That means he wants to pull all your imperfections to the surface for everyone to see. I mean, that's hard. When you're going through that, you're probably not all that pleasant to be around, right? I probably am not, right? But the amazing thing, the beautiful thing about unity is that that is when God's glory shines so brightly in the church. Because the world sees it. The world sees when we're difficult to be with. And they see the other people around us who are difficult to be around. And they say, wow, like these people love Joe when he is unlovely. Right? Right? Man, it's like the the racial tension is broken. It's not even here in this church. They love one another no matter what. The world sees that, right? And they are like dumbfounded because the gospel is brought healing to our relationships. That's what God is calling us to in this text. He says, put your mind on the cross and everything that Jesus has done for you. Right, Walk with humility. Don't let arrogance creep in. And for goodness sake, be unified. God has done so much to bring us together. Don't let small things bring separation. It's not worth it. I'm going to get an amen. 
And through unity, God is so, so glorified, and I want nothing more for us as a church than to be unified in such a way that the world looks in and says, man, I want that. That is the coolest thing. They've got it. I I want that for us so bad. I have a few practical applications for us, and then I'm going to close us out here. Uh, I haven't divided up into the three sections here of the sermon this morning, the first being that grace-driven effort, putting our eyes on the gospel. Uh, And I've got three application points for you. Uh, The first is this, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Wake up in the morning, maybe you feel silly, that's fine. If you go stand in the mirror and just preach it. I mean, I mean, just preach it to yourself. Whatever you need to do, right? Maybe your spouse look at, looks at you a little weird. That's, that's okay, right? They probably need to hear it too, right? Pre- preach the gospel to yourself every day. Keep it fresh in your mind. Second thing is this. Have a deep prayer life where you are confessing your sins before the Lord. Keep a short list with the Lord. Pray, pray hard. Pray often. It'll keep the gospel in the front of your mind. And finally, set up reminders of the gospel in your life. Right? We, we just got out of this Genesis series. And if you remember when like God would meet with someone, they were like stacking rocks on top of one another. Right? Just anything to remind them of the amazingness of what God has done. Set up gospel reminders. Uh, one great way to do that, as I mentioned earlier, get into a small group. Listen, the people around you are some of the best reminders of the gospel that you have. Hang out with one another. Seriously. Like, get to know one another as a church body. Hang out. Spend time. Talk about the gospel. Talk about the Bible. Right? Pray, read, and talk about what the scripture just said. Be that gospel reminder for one another. And this is a silly thing. It's a small thing, but it can be effective. Go outside and find a rock. And put that rock on your desk. And be reminded of Jesus, the cornerstone and foundation of your faith. When you sit down at your desk at work, you look over and see that rock. And it's just a dirty old rock. But for you, it is a reminder of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the foundation of your faith and your joy and your hope. Regarding humility and gentleness, right? The first thing is this, pray for humility. Humility isn't something that you earn. If you earned it, you'd be proud that you earned it. Look at me, I'm humble. You know, it doesn't work. Humility is a gift to be prayed for. Pray for it. Don't pray for humiliation, please. I don't want that for you. But pray that God would continue to open your eyes to the truth of the gospel, that your view of yourself and other people would be informed by the gospel, and that you would live accordingly. Pray for humility. Second application point for this is to make it a point to pray for other people more than you pray for yourself. I'm not saying don't pray for yourself. What I'm saying is if you need to pray for yourself for 10 minutes, and I probably need more than that personally, right? But if you need to pray for yourself for 10 minutes, make it a point to pray for other people for 11. That will help you to grasp better the value of other people. God will work in that. Make it a point to pray for other people more than you pray for yourself. 
And I'm only going to give you one application point for unity, and it's uh, pretty obvious here, but keep Jesus the focus of all of your relationships. If you're married here today, you need grace. Both sides of that relationship need grace. You need Jesus at the center of your relationships. If you're here today and you're a parent, you need to keep Jesus as the focal point of the relationship with your children. They need grace and you need grace. Jesus at the center. Friends, acquaintances, we all need grace. Keep Jesus at the center of all of your relationships. Be reminded of the gospel, the amazing work God has put into you and to them. And if he is the center, we will have the unity that God is calling us to in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this morning, for your word in Ephesians chapter 4. You know, Lord, I, I love this this section of scripture. It's so powerful. Thank you for the gospel. Lord, would we always have our minds set on the gospel? Would we walk as a people of humility? And would we wrap our arms around one another in spite of our differences and follow Jesus? In his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>